Good morning, everyone. Wow, what an energetic uh, crowd this morning at 9 o'clock. James Baker, I thought about you this morning as, or this weekend I was, as, as I was preparing my message. Uh, happy Father's Day to all of you. It's, it's great to have you here. I, it is with a lot of joy that um, I get to uh, share God's Word with you. And uh, I realize every single time that uh, even though I, I believe God's given me the teaching gift, I can't do it without Him. Yeah, I really can't. And I want to begin today by sharing a, a really interesting story that I came across this week. You know, I love history, and this one was particularly interesting to me. And uh, it goes back to 300 B.C., so about, about 2,300 years ago. The prime minister of the first king of the Mauryan Empire, which was uh, situated in India, put together a Sanskrit hand, handbook. Now, Sanskrit is kind of the ancient language of, of the Hindus and of India. And in this handbook that the prime minister of the king of Ma the Mauryan Empire put together, he described a group of women known as the Vishakanya, the Vishakanya, which literally means poison maiden, poison maiden. And they, would, they were deployed by the emperor to assassinate uh, the enemies, his, their enemies or his enemies by poisoning them. Now, according to the handbook, the Vishakanya would be these little children. They started out, they would recruit them when they were really young. And they would uh, feed them a carefully crafted diet of poison. And it, the hope was that over time, they would develop an immunity to this poison. And at first, they would be given just very small amounts of poison, just trace amounts of poison. And if they were okay with that, then they'd give them a little bit more. And of course, they'd give them a little bit more. And, and of course, a lot of the children, a lot of the girls would get sick, and some of them uh, even died. If they lived, the next time they would give them even more poison and a little bit more and then a little bit more and a little bit more. After years of ingesting the poison, uh, these women now would get to the point where their body fluids had become so toxic or would be so toxic that it could kill somebody, that they could kill somebody simply by kissing them, by exchanging body fluids, or even by breathing on them. That's the Vishakanya. These are stone carvings of the Vishakanyas. And thus, the Indian kings would use the Vishakanya's venomous influence to assassinate their enemies. Legend has it that Alexander the Great, who, who died at the age of 32, uh, was, died from embracing a Vishakanya, and that Vishakanya was given to him as a prize for having defeated King Porus. That's what legend says about that. But I just, when I, when I read this story. I was just so fascinated. I had to share with you because it's just a reminder that the influence that we bring to bear on others can be either for good or it can be for, for evil. Now, last week, I kicked off a brand new series here in the Sermon on the Mount called uh, Matthew 5-7 through 7, called Live Like This. If you weren't here, I want to encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, uh, SBCC Live, and watch it. You can access it from our website by clicking on the media tab. But if you missed it last week, I want to encourage you to go back and watch it because it contains a lot of pertinent information about the Sermon on the Mount that will give you a, a, a clear understanding of what it's really all about. And I'll kind of summarize it for you. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller said that the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of what it, what it means to live as a Christian in the world. And Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, who is a teaching fellow at Ligonier Ministries, it's a ministry that I follow, professor of systematic theology, said that the Sermon on the Mount is a description of the lifestyle of someone who belongs to the kingdom of heaven. Augustine said that the Sermon on the Mount is the perfect standard of the Christian life. 
And a writer, in, uh, a writer in Anglican preacher, John Stott, who's also really a terrific um, man, said that the Sermon on the Mount is the most complete description uh, anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. In other words, it's opposite of everything in the world. It's the Christian counterculture. And he said, quote, here is a Christian value system, the Sermon on the Mount, ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, and network of relation." He wrote, and all of which are the total opposite of the non-Christian world. So there it is in the Sermon on the Mount. And then Pastor John MacArthur said that the Sermon on the Mount is the manifesto of the king. It's the manifesto of the king, which he says, quote, sets forth standards of entrance and life in the kingdom of God. And if I were to sum it up in one sentence, I think the Sermon on the Mount, I would say the Sermon on the Mount is all about how to live your life as a Christian, how to live your life in the kingdom of God. And that's why I decided to title this series, Live Like This, because that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's like live like this. And so if you want to know how to live as a Christian, then keep coming uh, and help and study with, it, uh, with us together in the Sermon on the Mount. So last week began by examining the first 12 verses, uh, which is referred to as the Beatitudes. So if you brought your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, if you didn't bring your Bible, I would encourage you to bring your Bible. Um, you can also... Uh, notice that inside of your Baywatch, which is our program, we have all of the <clears throat> we have all the verses listed for you. I should say mo- uh, most of the verses listed for you. No, I think all the verses are listed for you this time because there aren't that many. Uh, you can also open up your South Bay Community Church and, and follow along there. Now, just by way of reminder, the Beatitudes describes for us, the very first 12 verses describes for us who belongs in the kingdom of God. And I call these kingdom citizens. And that would be those that Jesus identified as being poor in spirit, those who mourn over their sin, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, and those who are peacemakers. And if you're living your life in that manner, if you're living out these eight traits, then almost certainly you will be persecuted. And that's the ninth beatitude, blessed are the persecuted. And that's referenced at the tail end of the beatitudes. Let me start there. Let me have you to take a look at uh, what we left off last week, Matthew 5, 10, and 12, uh, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted. And if you do all these other eight, then blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, if you live your life if you live your life as a kingdom citizen, then you will be persecuted. The devil will hate you and the world will go after you. And so what we have in these three verses right here of 10 through 12 uh, is the world's attitude toward kingdom believers. It's the world's attitude toward Christ followers and that is to go after them. We're gonna get them, right? That's how it ends. We're gonna get them. That leads in today's, into today's passage, which picks up right where we left off, verse 13, that would be Matthew 13 through 16. We're going to only cover four verses today. But what we have in these four verses is the kingdom's citizens' attitude toward the world. All right? The kingdom's citizens' attitude toward the world. So in verses 10 through 12, it ends with the world's attitude toward kingdom citizens, or the world's attitude toward believers. In verses 13 through 16, we have the believer's attitude toward the world. Okay? So it completely flips around. And I wanted you to see that as we begin today. And the believer's attitude toward the world our attitude to the world is all about influence. It's all about influence, not evil influence like the Vishakanya, but hopefully 
a good influence, a positive influence. All right, so let me read Matthew 5, 13 through 16, four verses, and then I'll pray, and then we'll try to unpack it all. All right, so Matthew 5, starting verse 13. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this amazing passage and this amazing book, this Sermon on the Mount, this amazing teaching by our Lord. And God, I, I pray that, that I would help, you would help me to do justice to the words that you spoke to us two centuries, well, 20 centuries ago, 2,000 years ago. And God, I, I believe that there is a work that you need to do in the hearts of every single person here, mine included. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do just that, that you would stir in us, that you would convict us, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, so that when we leave here today, when we're done today, we would leave different people because we heard from you. And I pray that that's exactly what would happen, that we would hear from you. So God, bless us now. Speak to us through your word. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you've been around here for a while. You might know that uh, I was born in Texas. I was born in a small little dusty town just outside of El Paso called, it was called Isleta. I, le- I was born in Isleta, Texas. Now, my, uh, my parents actually didn't live in Isleta. They, were, they lived about 90, wa- mi- 90 miles away in a city called Del City. Uh, it was in the middle of nowhere. There were actually more jackrabbits and rattlesnakes in Del City than there were people. And my birth added one more to their number. And my parents lived in an adobe house with a dirt floor and no plumbing or no electricity, no running water, no bathrooms, and no sink. And here's my mom standing joyfully in front of her adobe house. Uh, she's uh, 92 years old now. But because they didn't have electricity, they, um, they, they couldn't refrigerate food. And so the, what they would do is they, they would put it in what they called an icebox. In fact, a lot of people still call the refrigerator the icebox. And the icebox was nothing more than a, <clears throat> a wooden box uh, a larger, small wooden box in which you would store your food and you would uh, also put inside of it a block of ice to keep things cold. And every few days, the, melt, the, the ice would melt and so you'd have to go in there and get another block of ice to replace it. And so that's how they stored food. And my, mom, my mom also preserved meat by salting it down. There, every once in a while, they would go to the market, buy a, a, a small side of beef, and she would bring it home, and she would cut it into strips, and she would salt it down, and then she would tie string on it, and she would hang it in throughout the house, her little adobe house, until it dried up. And then a few days later, it'd be ready to eat. And then they would fry it up in the frying pan with a little bit of oil, and it was delicious. Uh, my brother and I grew up on this dried meat. It's one of our favorite things to eat even today. And my girls uh, love it as well. And so every, I learned how to do that from my mom. And so every once in a while, I'll get, uh, buy, go to the market and buy some London broil, uh, slice it all up, put some salt on it, hang it up, tie it up in string, and hang it up, dry it up, and then it'll be good to eat. And, and uh, meat, if it's salted, will last for months. And it would last for months. That's what salt does. It acts as a preservative. It, it slows down the decay. 
without, um, without salt, a side of beef or any kind of uh, piece of meat uh, will start to decay in just a matter of hours. You've probably experienced that. You leave it out too long and you've got to throw it away because it starts to decay. When we come to this section, Jesus begins by saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. And the first thing I want you to notice here is the word you. So if you, brought, if you have a pen, there's one right in front of you. Or if you're in the front seat, grab one from behind you. Uh, circle the word you. Now, it's impossible to tell from the English translation, which is what we have, that, uh, that the, the English word you is plural. In the Greek, it is plural. And this, this particular chapter was written in Greek, uh, originally written in Greek. And that word you is plural. It is not singular. You are the salt of the earth is plural. Meaning that Jesus did not speak to one person about this. You, you, James, are the salt of the earth. Or you, Don, are the salt of the earth. Since it's plural, and again, it's plural in the Greek. We, it's not in the, we don't get that in the English. It meant that he was speaking to a whole bunch of people. He meant that all of you, all of you are the salt of the earth. That's kind of the idea here. It's kind of like this. You are uh, the salt of the earth. It's kind of like if you were to eat a corn on the cob. What do, you eat? what do you need before you eat a corn on the cob? Well, you need butter, and then you need salt. And if you're going to salt your corn on the cob, you don't get one grain of salt and put it on your corn on the cob and eat it. You won't even taste it, right? What do you do? You get that salt shaker, and you just have at it, and you just t- turn that thing, and you just put lots of salt, and then you eat your corn on the cob. Same thing if you get a bag of popcorn. What do you do? It's the first thing you do. You just go to the, you're at the, you're at the movie theater and you put that under the, the, the butter and you just put a lot of butter on, just gobs of butter and then when you get the salt, right? You don't put just one grain of salt on the popcorn. You get that salt shaker and you just let go of that. You just let loose and you just put a lot of salt and then you eat that. And what happens after you eat the corn, the cob, and the, and, and the bob of popcorn with all that, all that uh, salt and, and butter? Your, your, uh, ar- your arteries start to harden, and, you, and, um, and your blood pressure will, will go up, right? But it sure tastes good, right? It tastes so good. Well, in the same way, one grain of salt can't stop a piece of meat from decaying. Neither can one grain of sto- salt stop the earth from decaying. And that's why Jesus said, you are all the salt of the earth. We need a lot of salt in the world. And uh, here's the, the other thing I want you to know about the word you. The other thing you need to know about the word you in the Greek is that it is an emphatic pronoun. Again, you can't tell from reading the English. But in the Greek, it is an emphatic pronoun, meaning there's an extra emphasis on the you. And it can actually be translated this, this way. You are it. You are it. You and you only are the salt of the earth. That's kind of the idea behind uh, this one simple little word. In other words, you are plan A, and there is no plan B. You and you only, you are it. You all are the salt of the earth. That's what Jesus was saying. And again, um, we, we don't get this in, in the English, right? We don't get it, and so it's very, very powerful. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said, you are the salt of the earth? Now, he didn't mean that you were literal salt. Not, you're not really salt. But he meant that we are salt metaphorically. He was speaking metaphorically. We are like salt because we have the power to slow down decay and function like a preservative. Not on meat, but, on, but in the world. If you haven't noticed, the world is decaying. And I'm not referring to climate change or the impact of greenhouse gases on the world. I'm referring to sin. Sin is decaying the world. Sin is destroying the world, and things are getting worse every single day. 
And as a Christ follower, I really believe that that's what we need to be concerned about. That's what we need to be focused on is the decay of the world because of sin. A few years ago, Dennis Prager, who is a nationally syndicated radio talk show uh, host, wrote a column titled America's Accelerating Decay. And here's the opening uh, paragraph of his, of his column, and I'll put it up here for you. He wrote, as one who loves America, not only because I am American, but even more so because I know, not believe, know, that the American experiment in forming a decent society has been the most successful in history. I write the following words in sadness. With few exceptions, every aspect of American life is in decline. Decay is the word. Prager is not even a Christ follower, and he's noticed that the world is in decay. And he cited several factors that are contributing to the decay of our nation, like the declining uh, family, the decline of the family. In his column, Prager pointed out that nearly half of American children, think about that, 50% of American children are born to a mother who is not married. He also cited this, 43% of American children, 43% live without a father in their home. Second, he cited what he called the end of male and female. The end of male and female. He said that for the first time in recorded history, gender is regarded as meaningless. And he said increasingly, quote, increasingly gender doesn't even exist. And he cited the fact that when you sign up for a Facebook account, you were offered, when it comes to indicating what your gender is, he says you were offered 60 different options as to what your gender is. In various high schools around the world, or around the country, he said boys are commonly being elected, more often being elected homecoming queen. A woman, he said, was recently kicked out of Planet Fitness for objecting to a, to a man being in the locker room. She was accused of being intolerant because the man felt he, like he was a woman. Third, Prager cited the, the end of right and wrong. The end of right and wrong. He referenced an opinion piece in the New York Times that was written by Justin McBrayer, who is a philosophy professor, in which McBrayer asked this question. Begins a column. I read the column. Begins by asking this question. I put it up here for you. What would you say if you found out that our public schools were teaching children that it is not true, that it's wrong to kill people for fun or cheat on tests? Would you be surprised? Would you be surprised? He was. And he did a little research. He went to find out that based on what's called the Common Core Standards, students today are being taught, all around the country are being taught that any claim or statement falls into either one of two categories. It's either fact or it's opinion. All right? So let me illustrate it by this chart. See this chart here. Every claim or every sentence, for that matter, falls into one of two categories. It falls either into the fact category or the opinion uh, category. And so, for example, the claim, um, uh, and, and by the way, he said that all claims that, are, that have a mor- morality to it, a moral base to it, or a value system connected with it, automatically falls into the opinion category, just goes there by default. For example, the rightness or wrongness of killing someone for fun is immediately, it's a, mora- it's a moral claim. The rightness of murder is a, is, a, is a moral claim or a moral statement. It is a value system. So it immediately falls into the opinion uh, category. Um, the idea, the rightness or the wrong of cheating, whether it's cheating on a test or cheating on your spouse, uh, cheating at work, uh, is a moral 
statement or a moral claim. Therefore, it automatically falls into the opinion category. And then Prager added his own example of Nazis killing Jews. Since the killing of Jews by the Nazis is another claim based on morality, based on morals, he said it automatically falls into the opinion category. And so this is how it plays out. Your opinion is your opinion. You're entitled to believe whatever it is that you want to believe. If it is your opinion that killing someone is fun, then it's okay because that's your opinion. If you believe that, if it's your opinion that, that cheating is okay, then it's okay because that's your opinion. And I'll throw another one in there. If you believe that it, it's okay to, if it's your opinion that it's okay to molest children, well then, you can go ahead and do it because that's your opinion and it's okay. And that's what he's finding. And this is what children, he found out, McBrayer found out that children are being taught this all across America, America today. And McBrayer said that when we start classifying moral claims or moral statements as opinions, what we're saying is there's no moral truth. If there are no moral facts, there's no moral truth. And, whatever, and that means you can do whatever you want to do. You can do whatever you want to do because there's no right and wrong. And that's where we're headed today. And that's why, moral, why Prager said our nation is on decline. There's no more right and wrong. Finally, he cited the end of religion. He cited a couple of others, but the end of religion, Prager basically said that we have lost our moral compass because instead of being guided by a set of value systems or value standards that is higher than us, we rely on our opinions. We rely on our feelings to tell us what's right and what's wrong. Therefore, he said that our nation is declined, we are decaying, we are in a moral freefall. All of this from someone who is not a Christ follower. And I believe he's right. And we see it everywhere. Now, I talked about this a few weeks ago, what's happening with our kids. I mean, there's depravity and corruption and sexual immorality and lying and cheating and steal, stealing and drug trafficking and sex trafficking and drunkenness and debauchery and anger and hatred and prejudice and wickedness on a scale that I've never seen before. And just when you think you've seen it all, Something else comes along and evil rears its ugly head. For example, next week, and this is something I learned from, from James Baker, who, who uh, was a sergeant in the LAPD. Next week, the City of the Angels will host, you know what this is going to be next week, James? The 15th annual World Naked Bike Ride is next weekend. I'm not kidding you. James actually told me about this a couple years ago. The 15th annual World Naked Bike Ride through the City of Los Angeles next weekend. You can ride through the streets of Los Angeles on your bicycle with thousands of other people buck naked in your birthday suit. And the city of Los Angeles, the city of officials have given them their blessings. And I remember James telling me one year, he said they were, they were told by the judge, you may not arrest anyone and if you do, I'll put you guys in jail. See, you, and, and by the way, you don't need to go see it next week, Okay. I'm, I'm going to be there making sure that you're not, no, I'm not. <laughs> Believe me, I'm not going to even go close. So how would you like to let your children, how would you like to be in downtown Los Angeles for an afternoon of lunch and all of a sudden you see all these, what are you going to tell your kids? Enter Jesus. And he comes to preach the Sermon on the Mount. And he said that the only thing, the only thing that can slow down the decay is you. It's you. It's you. The only thing that can slow down the decay in this world today, it is you, the kingdom citizens. We are the salt of the earth. We are the world's preservative. 
You can write that one down. You are the world's preservative. You are the difference makers. You are the ones who have influence over this world. And you're not an evil influence like the Vishakanyas. You are the good influence. You are the salt of the earth. You are the ones, we are the ones who stand in the way of the complete and total spiritual and moral disintegration of our nation and the world. We are it. In 1953, I think about this one, the the Reverend Billy Graham brought his evangelistic crusade to Chattanooga, Tennessee. When he walked into the stadium, he was appalled to find that ropes had been set up to separate the whites from the blacks. Whites were allowed to sit in the front. The blacks had to sit in the back. And immediately, Billy Graham, when he saw this, he was incensed, and he knew he had to speak out about it. He said, quote, no more of this. No more of this. And he went to the head usher, found the head usher. He says, please take down all the ropes. The head usher refused. So Billy got off the platform, took down all the ropes by himself. The head usher was furious. He resigned in a huff, Billy Graham recounted. But Billy Graham didn't care because he had to do what was right. You do what was right. He was the salt of the earth. In fact, he was the salt in the church. It's tragic that sometimes the church needs salt just as much as the world does. And with regards to salt, Jesus asked a very interesting question in verse 13. Take a look at verse 13. He asked, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And actually, it was somewhat of an odd question because Jesus knew, he just knew that salt doesn't lose its taste. Salt is a very a stable compound, sodium chloride. Very stable. It doesn't change. You can keep in a container for, for years, and it'll still be salty. But if it's diluted with water, it can, it can give you the impression that it's lost its, its flavor, but it really hasn't. I mean, if you put just a little bit of salt and you put a lot of water, and the more water you put in, you can't even taste it. It's diluted. All the salt is, is diluted. No, no, no. It's the water has diluted it. And Jesus' aim was not to teach us a science lesson about salt here, but he was simply using salt as a metaphor to teach us a spiritual truth. And that is that it's possible for a believer to lose his or her saltiness. It's possible for us to lose our saltiness. It's possible for Christ follower, a Christ follower's influence to begin to wane and to dissipate. And how is that possible? Well, it can happen a number of ways. It can happen when we don't walk the walk. It can happen when we begin to compromise our faith and we compromise what we believe. It can happen when we begin to dilute our faith with sin or with untruth. It can happen when we start to become like the world around us instead of standing up against the world. When we start to become like everyone around us instead of standing up against it, no matter what the cost, we can lose our saltiness. And if that happens, Jesus said, then you're no longer good for anything. You're no longer good for anything. You're worthless except to be thrown away and stepped on. And you think about those words. I want, you to, I want you to think about those words this week. That scares me. Terrifies me, the thought that, whatever, that Jesus might say to me one day, you're, you're not good for anything, Gary. You're just worthless as a Christian. I mean, you're just nothing. You're not worth anything except to be thrown out and, and stepped on. Does that terrify you, that thought that he would ever say that to you? Terrify you? Terrifies me. And it begs this question, then how salty are you? How salty are you? Are you the salt of the earth? Do you stand out from your friends because of your faith? Do you stand out from your colleagues? Do you stand out from your classmates? 
Do you stand out from the guys, your, the work, your co-workers, do you stand out from the guys on the basketball court? Do you, or are you just like them? Are you just like the world? See, we've got to be careful that we don't lose our saltiness. You know, one of the few things that my parents saved from their days in Texas was this kerosene lamp. You can tell it's pretty old. But uh, this was the only lamp they had in their small little one-room adobe hut in Dell City, Texas. This is what provided all the light for them. And uh, I, I would imagine that, that they changed a lot of my diapers in the middle of the night using this lamp. And, and my dad probably stacked this high on several apple boxes, probably put, that's my guess, put several apple boxes, stacked them up high. Back then, apple boxes were made out of wood, and he would probably stack the, the uh, kerosene lamp on the very top so that it would disperse light throughout the room, probably put it in the center of the room and disperse the light. You see, if you have only one light to light the room, you don't put it in a corner. You don't put it uh, in the closet. You don't cover it up with something uh, so that you can't, it can't give out the light. You put it in the middle of the room, and you put it as high as you can so it'll light the entire room. Well, in the same way, Jesus said that we are to let our light shine. In verse 14, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And once again, he was speaking metaphorically. He didn't mean that you were literally lights, but he was speaking metaphorically. Light is a metaphor. Uh, in the scriptures, light is a metaphor for truth. It's a metaphor for holiness. It's a metaphor for purity. And it points back, again, it points back to us. You are the light of the world. You, again, is plural. Uh, all of you are the light of the world. Not just, not just Cheryl is the light of the world. No, you, we all are light of the world. Dylan is the light of the world. And again, it's emphatic. You're it. You're it. Karen, you're it. You and you only are the light of the world. All of you. There's, you are plan A. There's no plan B. Which means that if your light is out, then there's no light in the world. There's no light. And there's a third metaphor in this passage, and it's actually not mentioned, but it's implied, and that's darkness. Darkness isn't meant specifically mentioned, but it's implied. Jesus said in John 3.19, take a look at this, John 3.19, he said, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Underline works were evil. They loved the darkness, and that darkness is connected with evil works. So this tells us that darkness is a metaphor for evil, for evil deeds. Ephesians 4.18, the apostle Paul wrote, they are darkened in their understanding. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Underline alienated from the life of God. You see, darkness is a metaphor for a life that is alienated from the life of God. In other words, darkness is a metaphor for godlessness. The godlessness that we see around us, that's, that's spiritual darkness. In Colossians 1.3, one more, 1.13, Paul wrote, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Circle domain of darkness. He has delivered from us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. The domain of darkness is the realm of Satan. And thus, in this passage, darkness is a metaphor for everything that is anti-God and anti-Christ and, and pro-Satan. It is satanic. 
So in the same world that the world is decaying spiritually, the world is also getting darker and darker and darker by the day. It is becoming more godless. It is becoming darker because of evil. Evil is increasing. And so decay and darkness um, are the unholy couple that is consuming our world. Decay and darkness go hand in hand. Wherever you have decay, you have darkness. Wherever you have darkness, you have decay. And that characterizes our world. That's the world we're living in today. Church, that's the world. Darkness and decay. And in the midst of this darkness, there's a beacon of hope. And you know what that hope is? It's you. It's us. And you can write that one down. I am a beacon of hope. I'm a beacon of hope for the world. Jesus said, you are the light. A city set on a hill. You are the beacon of hope. Let me show you how this works. Take a look at Matthew 5.16 again. Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right, underline good works or circle good works. In the Greek, the word good is the word kalos, kalos, and it means beautiful. It means beautiful, but it's translated in the ESV and the NIV, and I think others, it's translated as good, good works. But that's a little bit misleading because there's a huge difference, I think, between something that is good and something that is beautiful. Let me show it to you this way. Let me ask, I want to ask the ladies a question, right? Ladies, which of you, if you're married, uh, which of you would you prefer to hear from your, your spouse, your husband? Would you prefer to hear him say to you, honey, you are good? Or would you rather hear him say, honey, you are beautiful? Which would you rather say? And uh, I think that most ladies would say, I'd rather hear him tell me that I'm beautiful instead of good, right? I asked Pastor Dave about this. Which would you rather hear from Sarah? I'm good or beautiful? He said, oh, definitely beautiful, right? So I'm, I'm telling you, I think it's, it's beautiful, right? So men, I mean, there, there's, and that means there's a huge difference between that which is beautiful and that which is good. There's a huge difference, right? And so men, don't blow it today. Okay, you heard it straight from me. Tell your wife she's beautiful, right? Tell her she's beautiful or tell your significant other that she's beautiful. And I know you're going to forget, so do it right now, all right? If you're here with your significant other, they're sitting next to you, turn next to them, give them a wink and say, hey, honey, you're beautiful, man. You're You're beautiful. And if you're not sitting next to your significant other, don't say a thing, right? Just keep your eyes up here. You don't want to get slapped in church. And certainly don't say it if your, your spouse is sitting next to you and you purr the other way. Don't do that either. Jesus said that we're to do beautiful works, beautiful works for him. And if it's still unclear what that means, let me give you some synonyms for beautiful. All right, stunning, ravishing, lovely gorgeous. You see, the way we let our light shine is by doing these stunning, ravishing, lovely, gorgeous, beautiful works of service for Him. And these might involve acts of kindness and compassion and generosity and selflessness and sacrifice and so many other things. You know, this passage made me start to wonder as I read it, what would it be like if there were no lights in the world. We're plan A. There's no plan B. What, what would happen if we, we scratch plan A and there's no plan B? What would happen if, if there were no lights in the world? What would happen if Alvin and Alicia weren't 
out there. What would happen if we never sent another team to Uganda and Japan? We sent our Uganda team to Japan, uh, or to Uganda team to Japan. Uganda team to Uganda yesterday afternoon. They, they should be getting there uh, very, very soon. What would happen if we never sent another team to Texas or to Florida to help in recovery efforts and share the love of God with people? What happened if, if all of us decided to put our lights under a lid, under a basket? What, what would happen if, if the light in your home went out for good? The light in your neighborhood went out for good. And I'm talking about you, your light. What would happen if the light in your workplace went out for good? At, what, if, what happens if it, it went out for good at the gym where you work out or in the dorm where you go to school or in the class at your university? What would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. The world would get even darker than it is. The world would be even darker than it is. And there wouldn't be any hope for mankind. There wouldn't be any hope because no one would be there to be the light. No one would be there to tell them about Jesus, the light. And that's why this is so important. Hey, let me ask you something. Would you all take out your cell phones for a second? I want to show you what the world looks like today, what the world would look like today without any lights. This is what the world would look like without any lights. But you know what Jesus said? You are the light of the world. But not just one light. He said, you, plural, you're all the light of the world. Yeah, some of you are starting to do that. Turn on your lights. Everybody turn on your lights. All throughout this room, I want you to turn on your lights. You know what the world looks like? A dark world looks like when everyone is the light? It'll look like this. You see, light will penetrate the darkness. Light will cut through the darkness. And we can give hope to all those around us. And that's why it's so important that we be the light. So, so really it gets down to this, Christian. What will you do? Will you be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Or will, will you allow your salt to become tasteless? Or will you put your light under a basket so that no one sees it? I hope you'll be the light. And I hope you'll be the salt. And if we do that, we can influence the world and we can change it for Jesus. Let's close our time in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your words to us. This great passage. It's so heartbreaking, Lord, to think that we are living in a world that is getting darker and darker by the minute. It's beginning to decline and is beginning to rot. Yet, Lord, you, you chose us. You appointed us. You allowed us to be the light because Jesus, you opened our eyes to the light and you allowed us to see that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's only because of your grace, Lord. It's only because of your love for us that we can be the light. It's only because the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of us. It's only because of what you've done for us that we can be the light.
And so, Lord, help us to be the light. Lord, help us to be the salt of the earth. Wherever you've put us, wherever you've planted us, whatever classroom we're we're in, whatever family we're in, whatever apartment we live in, whatever community we live in, whatever baseball field we play on, our basketball court we play on, whoever our friends are, whoever our family members are, help us to be the salt and the light. Help us to take our faith seriously and to stand up for you. Give us the courage to stand for what is truth, even if someone doesn't like it, even if someone is upset about what we believe. Give us the courage in a, in a, in a loving way to project your light and to be the salt. Lord, I pray that you would allow the influence of South Bay Community Church to become greater and greater in this world. I thank you for people like Andy and Alicia. I thank you for those on a Uganda team who are, who, who are just probably getting there now. I thank you for those getting ready to go to Japan. I thank you for everyone in this room who is the light in, their, in the way that they serve you and the way that they represent you wherever they're at and the way that they are so generous. God, help us to continue to do all those things that we may bring glory and honor to you. So thank you, Father. Thank you for Jesus' words. Seal it to our hearts. And I ask this in Jesus' name.